0: Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. My name is Todd Rittendaro, and in this episode, I chat with one of my favorite writers, David Coggins. David is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Men in Style, as well as the book Men in Manners. David has also written for Esquire, GQ, Conan S. Traveler, The Rob Report*, and many, many others. I've admired David's writing for a long time and have taken some of his great travel advice, I also love David's perspective on life and he has a really unique way of turning anything into an art, whether that be travel, dressing, dining, and most importantly, creating a meaningful experience with everybody he encounters. This was a really fun chat and I hope you enjoy. Hey David, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Great. Great I to be here. Appreciate thanks it. On. It's awesome to be here in New York with you. And I'm excited to talk to you because I've followed your writing for a long time and I always love your travel articles and your books and uh our mutual love of Florence, of course, of but, course. Uh, thank you. there's definitely some things I want to get into with you that are a little all over the map. I did hear recently on a different podcast where you, you hinted at the fact that you have an art background, which I don't think I've ever heard you talk about before.
1: Yes, that's right. I, uh, I love this podcast to podcast content. Um, <laughs> well, I grew up in a very artistic, creative household. Uh, my dad uh, is an artist, and, as well as being a writer. And my mom's an interior designer, and together they did set design, theater set design. And so we grew up going to the theater a lot, going to museums a lot, um, surrounded by a very full house with a lot of artwork in it. And so I studied in college art and literature, and that was a very natural fit for me. And they were very supportive of that. So then when when I moved to New York a long time ago, I actually went to graduate school at Parsons, and I studied art, and I got my master's in painting, even though I wasn't a painter. And And that was, was a really wonderful experience in a lot of ways. It was also an interesting experience because it maybe taught me after a few more years after school that I probably wouldn't be an artist, but that education was important to me. I began to write about art, mm. and that that was a, a very pivotal moment in my life to do that. I think I'm moved by visual things like a lot of people. and. And as I get older, even more so maybe by older things. And you, you mentioned Florence. And one thing I always like to do in Florence is go to old churches and see paintings that have been there for a long time. Yeah, and that, absolutely. and that, that makes me think you feel some sense of continuity. Maybe the type of art I liked when I was younger was something that was more radical or provocative or more conceptual. As I get older, I look for maybe more reassuring <laughs> things. I don't know if that's true for you.
0: Right. Did you have a focus with what you studied in painting?
1: I really was into kind of conceptual projects. It was a different era of my life. I was, I was still, I was young. I probably was too young to go to graduate school uh, to study art. I think I was, I was sorting a lot of things out. I was was collecting a lot. I was doing a lot with Xeroxes, a lot with newspapers. I did things with disposable cameras. I had this odd idea that I invented uh, Instagram because I <laughs> had a project where I, I, I gave people disposable cameras when they were traveling to give to other people, so oh, people wow. I didn't know. And then the other people would take photos with the disposable camera, and they had had a address envelope to me, and then would send them back to me. So I received <laughs> uh, periodically uh, envelopes from all over the world. Uh, with these, which I didn't know where they would be from, what would be in them, and then I would get these photos developed, and they were incredible. And, and sometimes they were wonderful because they were from the deserts of Namibia, and sometimes it would just be someone's like Thanksgiving turkey or something, and like those were really good too. And so I, I, I did things like that that had a kind of communal aspect to them. And then yeah, that was at the show was an artist space worth a lot of those photographs. Actually, I, just about that project, I, I sent one to one person who I didn't know. I just sent it to Paul Smith, oh, wow. the Paul Smith. <laughs> and within a week, it, he sent it back. It said, uh, with a, on Villa d'Este Stationery, written, Paul's Half Day in Notting Hill. And I thought that was the most wonderful thing. And I, I, I love Paul Smith before then, and I will always love him just because he would do that, having no idea who I was, just a, an art student or just out of art school. Right. And, and I think I sent it to his store. I mean, what, what a cool thing for, for him to do.
0: Oh, that's incredible. And so does that collection still exist somewhere? My um, archive,
1: such as it is, does exist. It's, it's, it's under high security. I think it's in, <laughs> in the one closet in my apartment, which is where we are now, I that uh, I, I might take it out in some way. I mean, I think it, a lot of the things I was interested in then would probably have translated well to magazine or mm. online. I wasn't making that many objects that were were rarefied it was more about things that could be repeated right I did another project like oh I mean we're really dialing back here I mean this is 20 more than 20 years 20 years ago i did a project called a month without rent i spent every night of a month with a different person uh (laughs) in new york mostly and then like would take a picture of the bed or couch where i slept which turned out to be pretty funny because they were anyone who lives in new york it's it's like pull out beds and you could kind of even tell maybe where they were from and and if it was the master bed then was i sleeping in the bed with that person It, it was turned out to be very funny and then the people when I moved to a new apartment, I displayed all the photos and then invited wow. everyone who I stayed with to the party, of course, and then they were very curious to see what other people's beds looked like and very self-conscious about their own. And and I, then it was also nice to kind of have them together. And so that that was the sort of thing I was interested in then, which I don't know if it was sort of George Plimpton meets Sophie Call or something. But uh, And that was a really good experience to have, but I, I also think I, I didn't really know how to treat all those things i think now you would have a website or you would share them on instagram maybe but at that right. time it was was I, I was i was still finding some balance between kind of the importance of art or and maybe something that was a little more like a project that could have been shared in a magazine or something i right. think it would probably suited me better
0: wow what an incredible project though i mean <laughs> both of those i mean they're Thanks. both very very experiential and very analog which I love. Yeah
1: well that was the idea I mean I you know and I did I did some of the most important things that happened to me I went to Skowhegan the uh, School of Art it's a residency in Maine one summer where I met a lot of interesting people and extraordinary artists and I went to McDowell in New Hampshire the writing and arts residency there and it was those, those things to be around people who probably had more of a future in certain <laughs> field than I did was was interesting to see and to be around people like that and I still think about that I think it's important to have some sort of not important I think it's a good thing to have an education in the arts and the humanities in general even if you don't you don't follow up with it exactly
0: yeah just an awareness of history and sure what came before yeah exactly is <laughs> and, and it helps
1: you refine the things you care about and to know what you're capable of doing and to know what you like and and what other talented people are doing and and it it, it motivates you i think mm-hmm.
0: I, I think that's a good thing to have yeah absolutely do you remember the moment when you just decided you were not going to good on the art track and went on the writing track?
1: Yeah, well, I, I didn't like being in the studio. I think that was a, bit, a real issue for me. I didn't like being in a room and trying to create something on demand somehow. And, I, and because these projects had, they could have, I, I remember somebody said, oh, you're like a post-studio artist. And it's like, oh, I love these hyphens. I love these names. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm even a post studio artist. I'm a post artist artist. I don't even know what. I, and so I, I didn't like being in a, in a studio. I actually got this hard to believe uh, a woman I knew, a wonderful Korean painter she had a studio that overlooked the High Line Mm. on 26th Street. This was before the High Line was anything. And so I shared a studio with her. There was nothing on our floor except storage of old newspapers. And I was like, something is going to happen to this building. (laughs) And of course, now it's a very fancy luxury building. The High Line's changed very much. And all I wanted to do was sort of throw seeds out the window into the High Line and hope they grew up (laughs) into little flowers or plants. And then someone told me that the most, this was before the High Line was transformed, of course, that the most true Kind of natural biodiversity in the city was between the tracks of the High Line for 100 years because it was the only thing nobody could mess around with. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like that idea. I'll buy it. So then w- what happened was that one ye- one summer I decided I got an opportunity to intern at a magazine in London, Modern Painters, a one square magazine that is now decidedly not great. But at that time, the magazine was quarterly, and it had a lot of interesting English writers contribute to it. Julian Barnes, William Boyd novelists and it as well as art writers and it if you ever at a store a market and you see old copies from the 80s and 90s of modern painters get them they're really wonderful oh. and so it was interesting to be in a very small loft on Bermondsey Street not far from where the Tate Modern is now working with five or six interesting people on one issue of a magazine wow. and that which Ultimate, almost went out of business, which was odd because you really don't want to intern with a magazine for its last issue. It's sort of against, the, like, you think you might have a future there. And then I didn't want to be the bad luck that brought, brought <laughs> down modern painters after 30 great years. Uh, luckily, that didn't happen. And then I, I started writing about art. And, and that, was, that, was, that was a big, big situation for me.
0: Yeah. And were you writing about a specific period? Well, I
1: I started with reviews. I remember the first review I, I wrote as an intern. You're kind of allowed to write one review. And I got to review Jonathan Monk, a wonderful English artist who lived in Berlin and it was probably the densest piece of writing in the history of English if you tried to read it it was a page it would take you about 25 minutes and that was the first time I said the dreaded they changed my words when (laughs) when it was edited for the magazine which is as I thought I would never say and I said right off the bat and so I was reviewing shows and it was interesting because when you're young and have a lot of Uh, energy you think you're gonna tell people the truth oh this person's overrated or this and and it wasn't actually fun to write negative reviews and partly because unless you're Roberta Smith or Holland Cotter a very famous writer most reviews that are in the art in America people just want a sense of what the show was like they don't really want your hardcore blazing opinion and so what that taught me was write in a way that people understand what you saw, what the show was about, and put the show in the context of what the artist was trying to create. So you have to take yourself out of it a little bit, which, which took, which was a surprise to me. I mean, I always thought it would be like, you're really coming out and letting people know the world as you see it, but, but it's a little more nuanced than that. And then it evolved, and, and what I discovered was that I really liked writing about young artists that I thought deserved more attention and celebrating people or under underappreciated artists that I thought were really good and that more people deserve to know about. And so I did that a lot and and then got to write bigger features and do more interviews. And, and that was all really good. But at a certain point, I realized the world of art writing is pretty limited unless you're going to go all the way. And, and I, I wasn't comfortable. I got to write catalog essays, which I loved because then I could advocate for that artist mm. in that catalog. But I d- I didn't I didn't feel like I wanted to be in that world of It was a little insular for me and pretty intense and even intimidating. And I I was just uncomfortable there after a while. I wanted to write about other things, the things that animated me beside art and travel and tailoring and the things I do, fly fishing and all those things now. And to make that change was a pretty big situation in my life because you go from being writing cover stories for magazines and and um, not that it was a glamorous life but it was certainly it was going in the right direction and then to kind of put that on pause and trying to convince editors to let you write about something else, something you haven't written before was very difficult and actually something I think of to this day because every single one said well we have to see a sample of you writing about that and I said yeah but look at this thing you could see what else I've done, you know I'm sure I can do this too and they said well show us, show us that you can do it. So I kind of went to square one and started writing for free or for $50 or for at small places about, (laughs)
0: about these things to build up a portfolio. Did you find that you were developing a style back then of writing or were you emulating anybody?
1: Yeah. Well, the style was, I mean, the embarrassing thing when I look back on it is when I started to write about art, I felt. I didn't admit it then, or maybe I did, that you have to convince people that you're smart enough to write about it. or So you you overwrite, I think. At least I did. Right. And right. that it's it's not light or breezy or it doesn't move along. You're really picking every point to try to justify your authority on something, which is a very difficult read. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and, and I look back on some of those things as someone who who's written his whole life, and I've talked about this before in places like my dad was a very intense editor of my work. He he completely denies this now, but (laughs) it's a fact that when I was a boy and I had a writing assignment, an essay, I would turn it into him. He would be sitting on our couch in our living room in Minneapolis. He would be reading the New York Times and listening to whatever classical music on the radio, and I would, with trepidation, hand over (laughs) my paper, and he would pretty, like, not with kid gloves on, edit the hell out of my poor essay <laughs> and send me back up to fix it. And I could stay up past my bedtime on these days, and which you would think you would want to do, but was, of course, not good because you then had to go back down and present him the next next version, the next edit of the piece. And, and there was a real write it clean, right, in a direct way. And when I did get into school more, further places, professors always commented on, on my clean style of writing, <laughs> in, 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 which I, I didn't know I had, but I was very glad. It's sort of as if you're taught manners in your household, or people comment on the way you use your knife and fork, and right. you don't realize that it's because that was how you grew up. You just thought that was normal. And so my writing is always, I would say, has always been fairly analytic. As I've moved on to other things, it's opened up more, which is another story too. But at that time, I loved Fairfield Porter, who's the, a great painter, but also was a great writer, mm-hmm. and wrote a lot for Art News. And I, loved, I liked his writing a lot. I mean, Robert Hughes was my hero, but he, he was much more pugnacious. I couldn't, couldn't do that if I wanted to, and I wasn't ever asked to do that. And I took it very seriously. I mean, I, I wanted to write about things I cared about, and I wanted to try to put into words what was at stake in something. And, and that, that mattered to me then, even in a 250-word review that you're getting paid, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars for. <laughs> right. But uh, that, 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 that was a good, good education. Yeah, for sure. And I had incredible editors, almost all of them women, who worked at Art in America. Really, very smart people who had devoted their life to this for not necessarily a lot of recognition or money. And they they really helped my style as well. And I would put one joke into every review, and it would get edited out of every review. <laughs> I had a four year there's jokeless streak. <laughs> that uh, there's no sense of humor, in right? Art. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Can you remember any specific piece of advice that one of those editors? Should maybe influence you with? Well, I think, I think the
1: the overall thing was that you, you want to put... I, I mean, I, I'm embarrassed that I ultimately use sort of a formula. You you give a opening paragraph. What is, let's say, Richard Tuttle, what, what, what is he kind of about, and what does he... he Introduce people to what what he's been up to and what he's doing in the new show. Talk about what's going on in that show. Maybe you toss in one paragraph about one piece you didn't like quite as much. Come back, but in the end, or ultimately, he succeeds in doing X, Y, and Z, and then your one moment of pride is the last line. It's, he, he creates a world of poetry that exists in his own creation, or whatever it was. Right. <laughs> and I think once, when I was probably high or something, I went back and looked at all my old reviews and just took, look, put the last line and c- compiled them all together and made some sort of expository poem out of it and read it to my sister, and we laughed you know, completely hard at my, like thinly veiled
0: pretension. I don't know, maybe it wasn't even veiled, it was just straight (laughs) up pretension. Just straight up, yeah. (laughs) That's really funny, I love that. Well, I first found you through your travel writing, Mm. uh, some of the Condé Nast Traveler stuff, and I think uh, maybe specifically a Florence article. But I'm just curious, how how did you get into travel writing, what was your first gig with that? That's a good question, and I I have to, I mean,
1: people ask me and they write me on Instagram all the time, like yesterday, how do you get into these types of things, travel writing, or art anything. And I can even, I'll tell you, a big story I wrote for for Art in America was about the artist Ai Wei Wei, mm. who's now oh, yeah. world famous. At that time, he was still famous, but not at that level of prestige. And uh, my professor knew that I was going to Hong Kong and Beijing, and he said, Well, you should write Ai Wei Wei, who my professor had just been with at a, at a residency in Austria, I think. And so I emailed Ai Wei Wei who very casually said, just come by the this, this studio, which is this incredible compound. And, and then I told my editor at Art in America, I said, I'm going to Beijing. I have a chance to see Ai Weiwei. Can I do a story on that? And, and I say this because for young writers and even any age writer, if you know something that might work for a magazine, a publication, and you're paying your way clearly. Like That's a very important thing to say. I, if you know that a magazine it might be interested in a certain new restaurant in Tokyo, and you say, I'm on my way to Tokyo, I have access to this restaurant, would you be interested in something like that? And that's how a lot of things begin, because you don't want the thing that keeps you from doing it to be a budgetary issue. Right. And so I did do the story on A-Way-Way. I, buzzed the door a assistant answered it he was giving a, he was in a meeting about an architectural project this was before he did the bird's nest which was a huge part of the Olympics that year, the famous Mm -hmm. building, and he just took me around. There were cats everywhere. I couldn't believe it. I was, (laughs) I I, would also thought, what the hell am I doing in the middle of the outskirts of Beijing if he didn't answer? I mean, I just like pressed the button. Of course, he couldn't remember emailing me, understandably, had no idea who I was, but (laughs) took 45 minutes to walk around with me, and then I saw him again at Documenta, the the Castle Art Fair that year, and, and it was a pretty interesting piece that I'm very happy that happened to ha- have happened, but it was yep. complete. It wasn't luck because it was strategic, but it was still kind of implausible in a way. So when I wanted to write about travel, I was thinking, you know, you've got to be tactical there too. I'm going to be in this place. Can I do something about it? In the intervening years, I had written a lot for Men's Vogue, RIP, for a wonderful editor named Owen Phillips, who had been the arts editor at The New Yorker. He moved oh, wow. to men's vogue when that opened and I really I wrote for him for their blog website every almost every day. That was a huge transitional period. He, I wrote about auctions and restaurants and all sorts of things and very quickly and, and Owen helped me kind of take out some of the stuffiness of my art writing mm. is he would just say open it up a little bit and I was still writing these very formal rock solid kind of chiseled out of granite <laughs> pieces he's like you know it doesn't have to be scholarly it's an auction of the sopranos memorabilia <laughs> like, and so I that was very helpful yeah uh, <laughs> and very necessary and he was and he's a friend of mine he lives in in Los Angeles now mm. um, as a matter of fact and I think that that helped me Get I don't want to say my sea legs, but it helped me open up a lot, sure. and and then I could write about things more efficiently too, and that was a really good education. I, I don't I'm embarrassed to say I don't know how I got into my, my first travel piece. I imagine it was the uh, same way. You get to know editors; they know that you've done certain types of things, and then you say, "I happen to be in Paris. Could could I write about?" This food market or whatever it is—that's that, a gray spot. I've got—I've got to get a better story for this, so I can, <laughs> no, so no. I can—I
0: can do it in my uh, my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now I'm sure most of the things are just so organic and yeah. just sort of happen subtly over time, anyway.
1: It's good but. to know an editor. I think—I I mean, it, it's amazing how many times people ask me, "How do you?" How do you write? And and about travel, because I think that's such a huge part of so many people's lives. And uh, there are different types of pieces. And in a perfect world, you're doing something that you would be interested in anyway, and you're writing in your own tone of voice. Mm -hmm. I think one thing, one theme of what we're talking about here when it comes to art writing or travel writing is that sometimes you're reporting. And then that's not about in your own voice. And so uh, the dream is to say, what's your favorite restaurant in Florence? Tell me about it. In reality, it's often give people five different restaurants in Florence and give them a sense of what each one is like right and it's good to be able to do both those things and you're going to have to do the reporting before you get to do in your own voice right. and, and um, you know at a certain point you want to be at that place that you can people want to hear your input on it, but in many cases, they just want the magazine's overview of where to stay in New Orleans, not what I do when I go to New Orleans right
0: no I think that's a really Important distinction and and a helpful piece of advice to kind of think about both those as separate things. Well, That's good.
1: Right, and it's true for how we... uh, This was, of course, before Instagram, right? Right. And that that makes things very different (laughs) because then you do have people with very specific identities, a visual identity, and you can see what they're doing. I was going back somewhere... I lived in Tokyo when I graduated from college before I moved to New York and I all I had then was a Frommer's guide. I mean and a few cut out New York Times stories. I mean now you have I mean think of all the things you have. Oh, I yeah. mean you could you could look at twenty different photos of a given tempura restaurant and then you just had whether or not there was a star by it yeah. in, or if lonely planet liked it or thought it was overrated or something. Yeah. An incredible amount of information we have now. And I think that, that affects how a story should be, I think in a certain way. It makes people more interested in stories with strong points of view because they know they can get so much information other other places. They don't need to know what the 12 hotels are; they can figure that
0: out on their own. Right. A Google image search is a very powerful thing. <laughs> For sure. It's funny. I have all these old issues of gourmet magazine. Sure. And there's some fantastic, really dense travel stories, and them, like full of romance and adventure. Absolutely. And tasty food. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I feel yeah, those days are kind of gone.
1: They, it's tough i mean it's 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 amazing to look at an old uh, the budgets are gone, the patients are gone, and just the way we I think a lot of things are good now. I think some things are sad that mm-hmm. you don't have that type of beautifully produced kind of, especially travel travel content, but the world keeps moving,
0: yeah, just going back a little bit into the more like editorial hard print days mm. of when you could have a little more. Uh, room to open up a travel story. What what did you what do you think makes a good travel story? From if you're going to do like a proper
1: great question. I, I mean, a traveling to me is about a, a going to a great place, and a place that people will be interested in, and then having a very specific experience that touches on both. What makes that place great, and then something improbable that happens to you, mm-hmm. and and that's why we travel. I think it's you. You want to see some something that made you in the first place want to go to a C C, and then you also want to discover something. You want to make make your pilgrimage to see the great frescoes, and then you want to. Come across a, a small restaurant run by two uncles that uh, just opened briefly, and you want to be—they—they're about to close, and you get to go in and have lunch with them and their family sitting at the next table, and—and right. and those two things together, I think, make something memorable. The same way it makes travel memorable. So. The first thing about travel is it's good to have done it, a lot of it, because <laughs> right. then I think you put yourself in position to have those discoveries. You want to go to the flea market, and then usually in a city where there's a flea market, there's usually a good cafe near it because that's where the people from the flea market go. Right. And so you you want to look for that, and, and you want to be a little stubborn and not just settle on the first thing you find. You want to hopefully hold out and find one that could be a little bit better. Yeah. And I think that's what I like about traveling and I like when you when that's I don't know if it's stubborn but that that opportunism that you have leads you to something good yeah and and you and you sense that something might be around the corner and when it's there that is great and and if you can communicate that to someone it's even more great and and I think at a certain point if you write about things that matter to you you have to want to Communicate what you love about them to new people partly because you think they deserve an audience and partly because you you like sharing things with people and I Share most things with people. I have a few secrets. (laughs) I have a bar in Kyoto that I will never disclose to anyone I will bring someone there with the knowledge that they can never find it again because it's impossible (laughs) to find Um, but most everything else I, I think deserve you know I think you if you're writing about it you have to want to share those things with pe- people and also mm-hmm. it probably makes your stories better because you bring the passion you feel towards them right. to to try to convey that to someone and, and, it, and it makes me happy not at, at any large-scale way but if a, if a hotel I like say in Kyoto that that people go there and I hear from them that they've
0: gone because of something I've written or photos I've posted and obviously that's that's nice yeah absolutely when you were doing the, the more editorial, longer travel stories, and were paired up with a photographer. Is that something that you had input on, or were you able to pick your photographer? Well, the
1: best story, the best travel story I ever did was to Harris for the tweed story mm-hmm. in Scotland. And I was with Matt Hranek, who's a great friend of mine, and Jake Muser, great tailor. And and that story happened, and I don't know if it was organic because it was, I don't know if an idea can be organic, but then the strategy involves pu- pulling it all together. And so we went to the Outer Hebrides in Scotland, where to Harris, where Harris Tweed is made. Wow! And it's a very specific story because Tweed is made in these um, mills, which are or sheds really that a person who has to reside in uh, Harris pedals a loom and makes a bolt of fabric about every week, and then it's finished in one of the finishing houses and becomes officially Harris Tweed. Great story, hard to get there. And Matt Hranick, who loves Tweed and is a great travel photographer, I like him, and if you're asking about you, first of all, you don't get to choose anything. Everything about writing is not in, not getting to choose it. If someone asks me to write something, I will always suggest Matt because we have a lot of the same interests. He likes to eat, he likes hotels, he likes to travel, he likes tailoring, and he's a terrific photographer. And one thing that he does really well, I, I like a photographer who's not very fussy about it or if they know what they're doing and they don't have to draw a lot of attention to what they're doing. Right. They can work quickly, be as nimble as possible and keep as small a f- footprint as possible. I think it's just a more natural experience. Sure. And And I think... A good photographer can capture the moments, knows what's at stake, can get their shot quickly, basically on the run, and then can make a very strong edit. You're talking about visual storytelling. That's what photographers are good at, right? And the trip should be pretty natural because I think a big production takes away the fun of it and also it, it makes it more stilted. And I don't think that gets the kind of results that I like. And so this trip to Scotland was nice because there were three of us. It was a legitimately fun trip with highs and lows. We got a flat tire on a in a fancy (laughs) Range Rover right around Loch Ness, like literally the (laughs) lake of Loch Ness. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. And that was part of, you know, part of the process. And um, and so was just driving down a dirt road in and buying a bolt of Harris Tweed from a man who had made it himself. And, and so was being in probably the most intense pub I've ever been in called the Criterion, <laughs> where there wasn't even a women's room. I mean, which tells you a lot about the clientele there. Right. I don't think we lingered very long there.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Obviously the landscape has changed pretty dramatically from prints into digital and Instagram. Do you, do you enjoy Instagram? I, I, lo- I love Instagram.
1: I think we're all coming to terms with how we're gonna use it and what we want from it. I used to love the map feature which they've gotten rid of so you could go to someone's page and see all the photos they'd taken in Turin which was really helpful Mm -hmm. and if you were involved in the travel business at all for the people you trusted you could see if they'd ever been to Tokyo and you could see where they'd gone and then looked at their photos and so that's that's not there anymore which is a little bit too bad but Instagram is is very good as a very good tool and it's been a good tool for me too. I, as someone who travels a lot, I can share places that I like, and I can and stories helps too for things that are a little bit like the B sides. If, right. <laughs> yeah, if you, uh, that's a great way to put and, it. And um, and and I think it. I like to be able to at a certain point, if you have an audience and they know what you're interested in, then they're curious about those types of things. And so you can tell them about bars, you can tell them about tailors or barbershops or shoemakers or whatever it is. And and just because those are naturally the things I like anyway. And so I, I like that balance. I think everyone's going to find their natural level of how often to post and how much to do and when you're showing off or when you're just sharing something and that's a very very fine line between all those things yeah. and I think I think just as a, I think it's all in flux because it's becoming a more powerful tool and that that's can be good and that can be not as good sometimes too and let's just say there's a lot of muting going on <laughs> in my account <laughs> and uh, and but there are people that I'm very curious to know what they're doing and and I want I, specific ideas about places to go in rural Japan or something like that yeah, so for sure uh, and I think also it can lead to good things just from a writer's point of view if editors have a sense of what you're interested in, and for better or worse, just Instagram is a very quick way for people to understand what, what you care about if you do it, if you treat it that way. Right. It can be a good professional tool which sort of drains the fun out of it, but if it, if it gets you more opportunities to write about things you care about, then, then it's worth it. Yeah, for sure. Do you feel
0: like you've adapted your writing style for digital?
1: Well, oh man, that's a good question too. I mean, I think it's a, always a balance. I, I would I, I would much rather write about one week in Kyoto, one of my favorite cities, and really give a sense of how you can spend time there and and really really lay that out in a in a in a long-form way would be is wonderful for me. Right. In reality, someone's going to say David Coggins, what are your five picks for Kyoto? And then I give a bang up, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. And, and that, you know, that's the world we live in. And so sometimes you don't get to write the the piece you think you're going to going to be able to write about this uh, long road trip. People are just going to say, where are three places to go in Marfa, and you got to do that. <laughs> and and right. you know what, sometimes you just do it. And, and it, where do you go in Florence? And maybe that's how we got to know each other through that story.
0: Yeah. No, it's funny. I. I've been, you know, I lived in Florence in 99. I studied abroad there. I'd been going back tons of times, and it's just such a layered city. You can always find something new. And in one of the travel articles that you wrote, you mentioned a cigar shop with. A little man who you know runs it, Giovanni. And you're like, go say hello to Giovanni. So I went in, I said hello to Giovanni. I had like an hour long conversation with him. I bought a gorgeous leather cigar holder, and it was like one of the highlights of that weekend.
1: That's great to me. That's great. To, that's great to hear. I, I love that. I, I, well, I love Giovanni, who's is really a kind oh, man so, with a wonderful such face and yeah. in an, in an incredible store. And and that type of experience is why, I mean, Florence is such a well covered city. It's one of the most beloved cities, very manageable and, and very touristic in a lot of ways. And when you go into Giovanni's store, which is steps from the Duomo, right right, right, there. right there, and he's got this incredible smile, Incredible graciousness and and really wonderful leather goods in addition to cigars and I've got to know him just through that store over time at first I just wanted a cigar then I started to try those Tuscan cigars and I was buying leather goods and I would bring people in there and and I look forward to seeing him there and and I think that that type of I Don't want to call it meaning but that type of experience that builds up over time is why we go back to places and then and if I can help share that with someone and then they go and they have some their own version of that experience is that that's nice
0: right Uh, as i was leaving i'd never tried one of the toscano cigars and he was he like presented it to me and then he was like only smoke this after a big meal. Good.
1: Well, I, I, the Toscana, which you cut in half, of course, and everyone is smoking there. I once tried to smoke two halves in one day, and I've smoked a fair number of cigars in my life, and I have never felt worse than trying to smoke two of the, two halves in one day. And it didn't prove anything about masculinity. It just proved that I could not handle it, and I don't ever do it. It's a great place.
0: Yeah, he took one look at me and gave me a stern warning. <laughs> yeah, said, exactly. Yeah, this, is, this probably isn't for you, but here. So does, does travel continue to... Keep you engaged and interesting.
1: yeah travel my my year revolves around the trips i 'm taking i, I don 't know if that's true for everybody, but that's both professional and personal and um i'm going to London tonight i'm writing a story about a a fabric mill in Yorkshire oh, wow. uh, tomorrow, so that's Amazing. nice and then and then I think one thing that you can do as a writer and uh, is that when you're going on a trip that then you you start peppering editors you know with possibilities that might make sense for them, and so you a trip some trips you do well and have a lot of stories, some you break even, some you s- save something for later. Mm-hmm. Maybe you become not an expert by any means, but some, someone mm-hmm. who's known to like a certain city, so then editors could ask you for your opinion on that place. Right. And so I yeah I'm you know I've lived in New York for more than 20 years. I love it here, but I also love not being here. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> think that's a key part of being a New Yorker at a certain point, and so I'm, I'm probably on the road six months of the year. Oh. Um, a lot of that is travel for work some of that's fi- a lot of that's travel for fishing and i like doing that I, i'm i like going to a place I, i'm very interested in argentina now i was um partly because it's very nice there in january and february when <laughs> you don't really want to be here and, right. and there's such great fishing there and i was in buenos aires in in january and i just i lost my mind i could not believe how great it was i'd been there before but Somehow it felt very right right now. And I would, there are incredible apartments on Airbnb, wonderful historic apartments, sort of peeling paint and, and grand, former grand places that are still incredibly charming. The food's wonderful. You can walk all over and then take an Uber home for $3. Right. And it, it, the gaucho style is fantastic. I really, I know a lot of people going to Mexico City, which is a great, great place. If, you, if you're thinking about going, if you like that and you want even at a larger scale, Buenos Aires is fantastic. So I had such a time there, I thought I really want Buenos Aires in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I'm already tr- talking to the woman to borrow her apartment next, or rent her apartment next January, trying to do some more fishing in Patagonia. So that, that that's the type of thing that it's nice getting, falling in love with a place or, or, or connecting to it again after a long time away and then also trying to make it part of your life somehow and see if that can be professionally done or if it's right. just something that you you look forward to doing and, and, and do on your own.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I've only been once and it was for a few days but I loved it. Uh, it. was, Yeah, it was in December and it was about 170 degrees every day but I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you gotta get a little lucky on the weather. Uh, yeah, letter. no, it was still it was fantastic. Obviously you do travel a lot and and one of the things that I really admire about you is that you You know this podcast is all about visual arts but also kind of how how one frames their life as an Mm. artist and i know i know that sounds weirdly tangential but i'm gonna bring it back around i promise you make travel an art you have your book on manners which i think underlying is like how do you make a nice experience for everyone that you interact with so i want to dig into a little bit about that but first you've sort of made travel into an art do you have any travel essentials or ways that you like to think about traveling elegantly?
1: That's a good question. Thank you. I, I I think in some way you you want to be at home where you are, wherever you are, and that means, in some basic way, respecting the place you're, what you're doing when you're there. This is going to sound very archaic, but to me it means dressing up when mm-hmm. you're there, on the plane even, and when you're there and trying to experience it in a nice way and and giving, uh, trying to do the things that. I guess touristic things, go to museums and churches, and then also give yourself time to do things that matter to you. I have no problem sitting in a cafe for a long period of time or going to bars and and enjoying being in these places. I think you don't, for me, I know some people just want to be on the move, see as much as they can, and I do think there are things that you really want to see, but I also think you want to enjoy your time in that place. I don't think that means doing something that exactly you could do in New York, but I do think If you find a wonderful wine bar in Buenos Aires, like, enjoy that. Right. And I I think, to be honest, I think traveling light is a really useful thing. I I, I can't (laughs) say that enough. I think, I think I'm, I'm probably the world's largest hater of roller bags. I hate them. (laughs) And I think that, and I think for many reasons, number one, aesthetically, but number two is that they, they make people overpack and it's harder to move. And I can't say how there will be one time in every trip you take where you wish you had packed less, maybe more than one time. And if you and, and doing things when you're kind of living light is it, it puts you in position to do more good things. It, you can you can see more. You you don't need nearly as much as you think you need. If you really want to get down and dirty with, for men I think wear Oxford shirts. You can wash them yourself. Wear things that don't wrinkle. Nothing too fine. You can live with much less, and then you feel more quickly ready to get into your environment. And then and that can be and that's nice because that's what you, that's the idea anyway. I right. think. Yeah. And if you if you wear a coat and tie on a on a plane, you might you might you
0: might like it right (laughs) for sure i remember when i was in in college i used to wear a blazer i forget who told me to start doing that but i in this was in this days when you still could get the the random upgrade sure and i just yeah i remember they needed to shuffle somebody and they pulled me and the guy was like oh you look good the very (laughs)
1: chance of that should be enough the one out of a hundred chance for an upgrade should hopefully convince (laughs) more men to dress up on the plane
0: right it is funny though you do get treated differently
1: well i think it's I, i think if you bring I mean, travel is such an intense experience, the the, the mechanics of it, the logistics of it, the, the the airport lines of it. And one thing that Men and Manners, the book, talking about is just being a little more patient than you have to be and knowing like nobody likes being in these lines. Nobody likes, you know, you're, you wait behind someone, you've been there forever, and then they get to the front of the metal detector and they forgot to take their watch off and you're like well what, what have we been doing in this line for 20 minutes if you're like not your and and just these things happen they're gonna be over soon enough and and if you can can kind of keep your rage under control I, I feel like that's a really good test for things in the rest of our lives too without getting too preachy about
0: it right no no I, I definitely agree but yeah.
1: I, I think the more you travel you also just on this idea of kind of travel as art you, you are more likely to find the places that you're going to like too. And I think that that's something that's really wonderful. If you can if if you can navigate a city and have a sense of where certain types of places are going to be or even where to get advice, how to do research, you're more likely to find certain things. Uh, the best thing I found in Buenos Aires, which was just recommended by a friend, was this gaucho tailor in a un- different part of town. Would never have known about it. It's been there for 130 years. Not fancy in any way. Mm-hmm. Very simple place that makes shirts and trousers in the gaucho style and is a, the greatest place I've ever been. I wow. mean, just <laughs> a, all you want from anything. And you know, that has to do with hopefully knowing interesting people, asking them questions. It also has to do with you know, once you find out about it, then you learn. Try to learn you know, peripheral things related to it. If you look at interviews, if Francis Malman says this is where he does something that might be good, all those types of things. Right. And then when you're walking and when you're in the city, you can you have a sense of how neighborhoods fit together, hopefully. And then that can kind of funnel you into the place you want to be. Right. And 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 then when you know it. Go in there, you know, and and (laughs) even if I mean, and even a little awkwardness, hopefully you get over it. And if they see that you're trying to enjoy, I'm thinking of places where it's a little more intimidating, like certain bars in Japan, or where where you do feel like more of an outsider. If you're being respectful and patient and trying to do things the way they do them there, then I think ultimately the experience will get better. I I just think of people going into a. Uh, an ancient bar or something and the first thing they say is what's the Wi-Fi password here? And you're like, let's just hold off on that for uh, maybe five minutes maybe all together and, wa- and look at other people and see what they're doing or maybe have studied up on it a little bit ahead of time mm-hmm. and maybe learning like three words in the language to, um, to smooth things along.
0: Yeah, I, I found in, yeah, in most places, especially Italy getting the better table or whatever right, it right. may be. But yeah, I mean, and to your point too, its I don't think it's always about the, the big crazy luxury experience, it's about finding the, uh, the place with the woman who makes the best whatever Absolutely. meal is in town. You obviously live a very curated, considered life. Was that something that you grew up with or was that something you consciously cultivated?
1: Uh, I think that's how I grew up. I—I didn't. I think a lot of people think they grow up in a normal way and it's not until they get older that they realize it's not normal. so my my parents very interested in travel very interested in art as I mentioned before and very interested in interiors and collecting things our house in Minneapolis had a lot of antiques a lot of books a lot of artwork and just a lot of things and it still does uh, their house which is incredibly full and wonderful that that seemed normal to me and I've and they love those things they love not, not collecting for collecting's sake, but connecting to an object. And because you like how it looks or the idea behind it, it could be beautiful or improbable or decaying in a wonderful way. And so I grew up surrounded by those things. And I guess I interpreted that my own way. And, and I love old furniture and I, I like something that feels like itself and can evolve over time and maybe had some purpose and was built a certain way because people really cared about it at that time. And they made a measuring tape with a leather case and really elegantly just because that's how they did it. And, and now it's falling apart, but I still love it. Right. And so in my apartment here, there's there's not a lot of room for anything else. It's pretty full <laughs> at this point. But I, I do like to find things that, are, that I respond to. I like being around objects that I like. And I don't like being around objects that I don't like. I mean, there's no no plastic, hopefully, unless it's, like, old little m- military men or cowboys. <laughs> right. And I think it's nice to not have those things. There, there is no equivalent of white socks in my apartment, <laughs> and that, that took some energy. It's a little exhausting, I'm sure, for other people, but uh, that,
0: that's, that, makes, that works for me. I'm the same way. I like little special things or, you know, whatever, just considered. So you have two books out, and you, uh, before we started recording, you mentioned a third that you have in development.
1: Well, yeah, I'm working on a book about fishing. It's still, it's still in the proposal form, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. I've been writing about fishing for the Rob, Rob Report magazine, and to have a column is really, really fun mm-hmm. to know that you have, we're talking about print and storytelling, and it's nice when you know you have a space every issue and that people will know a little bit your tone of voice and what you're interested in and to just know you have a page to write about what you want is, is very nice and a luxury and something i'm very happy to have mm-hmm. and so mostly i write about fishing every now i write about style too and so writing about fishing has been really fun it, it connects a lot of these things we're talking about it's about both the pastime of, of course, fly fishing, but also travel and, and the things that happen when you go to these places and the traditions. I mean, you're talking about Patagonia and Argentina. When you go there to fish, they t- make a full lunch. They set out a table. They put a red and white checkered tablecloth. You're drinking Mendoza wine. You have a beef from the night before. And it's a little salt and pepper shakers. It's incredibly done. You relax for an hour. You maybe even take a little siesta, which is just fantastic. And and that's the sort of thing that that I like sharing these these traditions that happen beyond the fishing and and how different they would be if you were in the Bahamas or if you were in Montana. Right. So the book is going to deal with that a little bit and I'm and I had such a great time in Patagonia and I thought how many other people I knew who would like to do that that now I'm starting to host these some trips, some uh-huh. fishing trips. So next January in Patagonia, next March in the Bahamas, bone fishing. So that the idea would be that I could could bring people down who I think would like it. Um, there for fishing and then the trip could be extended if you were going to Buenos Aires or whatever else you are going to do and I, I see that as being something talking about storytelling and sharing things this is a very physical way of doing that for being sure. on the you know me having visited places that I think people will like and then being able to to kind of share them in real time with people and trying to make those experiences good with a few special details, certain types of meals or you're bringing cigars down there or wine tastings or whatever it is in a, in a natural way, not in a fussy way. And that's something I'm, I'm very interested in doing going forward. And, I, and I, I, I see that being a thing that exists in the world in a few years in a, in a bigger sense, some yeah. sort of some sort of guided or curated tour. I don't want to get overly particular about it. I just think it'd be fun to fish with interesting people in nice
0: places and eat well. I mean, what could be better? (laughs) Seriously, outside? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the whole thing. That sounds incredible. Do you approach a larger project like a book differently than you would otherwise?
1: Yeah, I mean, a book is a huge part of your life. You know, it's a long-term relationship. You want to do it with the right person. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that and actually it does mean people in this case, a good editor, a good designer. It's a bigger part of your life in a sense of what, what happens when you look back upon it. And, mm-hmm. and men in Manner, or men in style, the first book I made that was important to me. That was the first book I did, and that was talking to a lot of different men about how they arrived with, at their point of view, their sense of style, their worldview, really. Uh, I guess it's a book about getting older in some ways. Things mm-hmm. we've learned from our fathers, things we argued about, and how we arrived at who we are. So that made sense for that time and for me at that time. And and that book is very dear to me. The way any first experience is dear right. to you. And then Men and Manners came out, and that and that was more about responding to this era we're in. That seems hopefully in a light-hearted way, in a funny way. It's got wonderful drawings by Christopher DiLorenzo, and it's a it's a lighter book. But but just talking about behaving better, being the best version of ourselves. I think technology is making us feel a little isolated, even when we're in public, and I think it gives us an excuse to kind of put ourselves in the center of things, and I don't think that's great always. I feel like there's something missing in the public sphere, and tra- traveling in, as well, and so right. it, that book was a reaction to that. And then I think a fishing book is more talking about The pleasure of fly fishing that I have, an intense thing I love, but also how how that fits into the modern world and making a case for moving away from, from our screens and getting out of reception. And learning a skill and slowing down and doing something we care about and a pleasure for pleasure's sake and not necessarily about sharing it on Instagram not about the likes right and and I feel like it's interesting particularly with travel about do why do we do these things do we do them just to prove that we've done them and get the shot and then put it on our big board on on Instagram or do we do it for some personal reason of our own and I think you almost have to work hard to get pleasure out of things in a personal way. And I think traveling is a really great way to do that, and, and so are all sorts of hobbies and activities. But when I'm interested and impressed when somebody can can do something and they've, it matters to them, and it maybe doesn't matter beyond any th- other sense of just getting better at it. Mm-hmm. That could be sailing, that could be learning how to be a butcher, I, I don't know. But right. I, I like it when, when people do that for themselves,
0: and I think we're maybe losing that art a little bit. I think that's a really important distinction. Uh, I always love this Stanislavski quote, the old uh, New York theater guy, which was, "Do you love yourself in the art, or the art in yourself?" Mm. And it's sort of like the same way with travel. It's like, do you travel for the grams, or do you uh, <laughs> do you travel yeah. for your enrichment? It's great, It's great. <laughs> do you have a do you have a daily writing practice or anything like that? I, I do a
1: little bit. I I like to write in the morning mostly. Sometimes I write in the afternoon or the evening. Sometimes I'll drink a little bit if I need to get going. and it it really depends if I'm... A deadline helps a lot to Mm -hmm. focus your mind. Sometimes I think about something a lot, and then I can write it pretty quickly. I think, you know, writing is really about clarifying your ideas, and then it will arrange itself pretty well when you know what you're trying to do. Of course, you don't always know that, and part of a big project, if you knew exactly what it would be in advance, it sort of wouldn't be worth writing it. But I think you also, as you do more of it, you're kind of less concerned with your style. I think young writers... Or particularly, we're an artist for that matter. What's my style? What's my style? And that's, that's why they in- imitate people they like so much because yeah. they want. And then, and then it evolves. And as you get older, I think it becomes more natural. And uh, and ironically, or coincidentally, it sounds more like you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but when you when you when you when you stop trying to look like something or sound like something, it's just the same way I think with dressing in some ways. When you stop trying to it becomes most natural when you're thinking less about it because you've got your sensibility more ingrained in who you
0: are. Right. Did your personal style evolve over time or was it...
1: Well, I've always been, uh, I guess, on the formal side of things. <laughs> I've I always liked certain things that I do now. I think you just get a little more refined about it. And, I mean, I've always been particular. And I've always liked sport coats and and, and uh, polo chinos and... and dressing up and and i think i just am more comfortable when i'm when i'm dressed up a little bit mm-hmm. i think you you learn how to do that on your own terms I, I think most of the men i think dress well they're dressed up but they look like themselves right and i think as you get older you can can be a little more specific about what what makes sense for you and know what you can get away with and also be a little more adventuresome but within the context of your own personality and i always like i always like that i mean i, I don't think you want to spend so much energy all the time,
0: but if you've thought enough about it, then you can seem like you've thought uh, right. spent enough energy, and <laughs> it just becomes a part of right your day, I suppose. Yeah. What are you into now, drink wise?
1: I'm I'm into natural wines, and and also asking for advice. I in New York, there's so many good wine stores now, and there's so many enlightened sommeliers and just servers and restaurants that I generally ask for advice and giving some some groundwork i say i like natural wines i like unusual things unfiltered biodynamic or things that i wouldn't know that i like and i i give some suggestion and and it's it's incredible what's what's going on now i mean the level of of wine literacy is really great and and to take advantage of that by listening to people who really know what they're dealing right. with is, is, is a, is a joy. And I've, I've found that at a lot of places you can get pretty far if you're specific and you say, you yeah, I'm looking for a bottle of this amount of money. These are the types of things I like, but I'm open to other things. And they, they're going to go right to something good that they're into and it's great. <laughs> that's so, fun, yeah. so that, that is, that's, that's something I, I like, I like a lot. I mean, I've, I've got my other little hobbies and aged rum and, you know, as the weather gets warmer, Riesling, i die on that hill can't wait for (laughs) for Riesling and and I do think aged rum on the rocks in the warm weather can be your scotch when it's sunny I would I would put that out there for for anyone you know rum agricole from Martinique Mm -hmm. I think that that's it can be really good as as a sipping drink and and I'm I probably drink too much gin. I try not to do that too much, but I gin on the rocks, you can taste the difference. It's kind of kind of interesting to to spend a little time getting to know getting to know gin if you if
0: you think you can handle it. Right. I I tread lightly. (laughs) (laughs) I've been in the gin phase lately too, which yeah, maybe time to shift that. But uh, (laughs) cool. I won't take any more of your time. I know you are heading to London this afternoon, but I really appreciate you sitting down. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's great to be with you. Thanks. Thank you.